Hello and welcome to the Cranogcast. Uh, today we're focusing the episode around um, sustainability and the inspiration that we get from the Iron Age. Um, I'm sat here with, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, yeah, so um, I'm Ed Hyden uh, and I'm the sustainability coordinator for the Scottish Crime Centre. Fantastic. Uh, and I'm Rich Hyden, I'm the community archaeologist. Yes, we are related before you ask. Um, so basically what we're doing is we are working currently on the development at Delurb with our, and Delurb being the new site which the Scottish Chronic Centre is building its new museum on. Uh, that will be in phase one next year in spring. Um, but one of the big things that we're putting it across with the development is that we want to be Scotland's most sustainable museum. Um, so, Ed is the sustainability officer. If you just want to take us through what that actually means. Yeah, so in terms of the actual word itself, I think it's probably the, the best place to start, is anything can be sustainable um, on its own. Uh, so that is, I think, the, the, the one that most people will know is financial stability. Um, so if you are earning more than you spend, then mm-hmm. you are financially sustainable. And you will be able to continue that for as far as and as long as you can you can do that. The difference or the the change now is what's known as sustainable development, where instead of just focusing on one aspect, so for example, how much money you make in, yeah. you incorporate several other aspects into that as well. Uh-huh. Um, so one of the big ones is the environment. So while you are... Which is what most of us would say. Yeah, so that's, that's the one that comes to mind for a lot of people. So we think about uh, climate change and global warming. Mm-hmm. Currently and in the past, however many years, the way that we have been using a lot of resources has been unsustainable. So oil and gas is the, the best example. It is a non-renewable resource. Eventually it will run out. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it is an unsustainable practice. Yeah. So... As we kind of move forward, we are trying to find new ways to bring in um, more sustainable ways of thinking and ways of managing. Mm-hmm. So then that also incorporates the last aspect, or one of the, the third aspect, I should say, um, which is the social side of things. Yeah. Um, so by that, and I think one of the best examples that I was given personally was... I can create a system which is financially stable, which Mm -hmm. is environmentally stable. Mm -hmm. However, it is completely based off slavery. Mm -hmm. So therefore, it would be socially unsustainable. Yes. So again, that's the three areas. And then the final area, which I think sort of pins it all together and knits it together, is the human area. So that's the personal needs of that person. So are they getting enough food? Are they getting enough water? Are they in an environment that they can thrive in? Um, is there a quality? Are they allowed to, you know, freedom of speech and such like? Um, and true sustainability, when you are undertaking something, is considering all four aspects at all times. So as we move over to Delurb and we consider what we can do there as a museum, mm-hmm. we're not just thinking about how much money we make. While it is important, we need to be able to balance the books. Mm -hmm. We are also considering 
because of where we are on Lotte, how can we protect the environment? How can we work with the environment? And then one of the biggest things that I think the, the centre is done really well is the skills aspect, how we're building skills. So as we move forward, not only are we learning how to do these new things, so whether that be turf walling, um, creating thatching, we are then passing that knowledge on yeah. And that sustainable knowledge, again, yeah. you can anything yeah. can be sustainable, continues throughout. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I think the um, one of our, our team here put together a, a fantastic um, mm-hmm. illustration of kind of our... One, I've seen it put in the past, I'm sure you've seen it, Ed, in terms of four pillars of sustainability, and that's quite a, a regularly used... In the, in the sustainability concept mm-hmm. world as something that is. And I think the pill, the idea of pillars, which which you alluded to earlier when we chatted about this, was they're very demarcated and they almost kind yeah. of keep themselves separate. Um, but actually what, what, what we've done as our diagram was using a tree yeah. in the fact that it all kind of feeds into the trunk you've got. And I think with what you've explained, you've got financial, which is really clear, you know, can you keep going and keep paying people? I think the big thing about financial is it's not on its own because, yes, you can see yourself in the profit or see yourself in the green, but are you in the green enough to be able to pay the living wage, to be able to support the, the team, which here yep. we, we we are a, a living wage, a real living wage employer, yep. um, and that means that you have higher costs. So that means financially you have to be, you know, You've yeah, got to keep you, that as a different level. Yeah. Um, and that's where your financial and, and what you talk about with the social, they start to interact quite tightly. Um, and I think with your, your three, it, three but it becomes four because the way we approach it is it's not just financial. It's not just about the environmental, which actually with what we're doing, building this museum, that's going to undermine now the whole thing. It's fairly straightforward, yeah. the environmental you 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 can count your carbon. You can do all the other stuff, yeah. um, and we can we can have a clear idea on what we need to do to be as environmentally sustainable as possible. But then carrying into that, it's your social side, and, and you said about social is that there's two different elements to that. There's being a place where we look after the people we work with, i.e., we've got a good environment where we're working and it's running. Yep. But then the other one is that we're a place where we look after other people that come to see us. So that's the visitors through the door, but that's also the partners that we work with um, throughout the time. And that that kind of, I think for us, that's that's something that we, we really strive to be as good as possible at. Um, yeah. So in terms of Delurb, um, what what is it you're doing, Ed, at this moment? What is it you're... Yeah, so my, my, my kind of main uh, reason for being here is to establish a sustainability document. Um, so what we, is that? So that will be a, a basis that will allow us to, as you said before, we can measure certain aspects of our environmental impact, so carbon dioxide, waste. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also will set out actions. Um, sometimes when we, we talk about you know big issues of sustainability, it, it feels like it's a lot of talking. Yeah. So for me, it's important to have specific actions that we know we are doing that then become part of what we do so sustainability isn't just about you got there well done you tick a box and it's finished it is about completely changing the way that you think 
So it's not just an end goal, it is embedded into everything that we're doing. So with the Lerb, we have a, a situation where we can almost look at everything because we are going to be building a new museum, because everything is going to be new. Those ideas and those uh, moments to create new ways of thinking are already going to be there. So we can establish sustainable methods and sustainable thinking and sustainable practices as we move along. Um, yeah, so I think what, what is nice is that the model that has been, we, we're basing all this off in terms of the document and in terms of how we work, um, like you said about the tree, is it's the four branches. Um, so for our model, if you incorporate what we've said before about the four areas, the four branches are a trusted partner that organisations and individuals want to work alongside, yep. a special place that people want to visit and support, place of choice to work and grow, a place that belongs in and cares for its environment. And I think what's important about those four is they are mixed. So you, you know, they talk about place, they talk about growth. Mm -hmm. they, they're mixed about a little bit. Mm -hmm. And that's because the whole thing is intermingled. Yeah. You, 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 you pull one lever, something else changes somewhere yeah. else. Yeah. Um, I think, not to jump in on no, yeah. there, but I think it's actually where the study of the Iron Age starts to really inform the sustainability of the new museum. So last week we were chatting to Jason about the iron slag and what was present there and how from just that one thing there was, I think he, he didn't want to use the term, but there was an entanglement of a lot of other things that yeah. feed in. You can't look at what we do and it's, sometimes it's quite unquantifiable, but you can't look at what we do. It's just, we do this and make money, or we do this. And that's where, the from 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 sounds like what you're talking about, is we're in stage one, putting that, that everything is being considered as, yep. as a whole and as an entire practice. I think I think the, the, the slag artefact is a really good example, because... From that, you have so many different things to consider before you even get to having iron ore and even producing the furnace. Mm -hmm. Like, where is the iron ore sourcing from? And that kind of ability to think in terms of the whole picture mm -hmm. is really, really important. Yep. Um, and that is where we are kind of lucky here is the Iron Age can help us remind us how to do certain things um, that we get reminders as we're coming in that, you know, people that had certain tools didn't throw them away. For example, they looked after them. Mm -hmm. It's a really, really simple thing that we are now so used to single use items that when I come in and I can see these objects, the, I know that in some ways there would be, you know, a sustainable idea there. Yes. Um, and while you know the Iron Age wasn't a hundred percent sustainable, there are things that we can learn. It was more sustainable than what it was we more are than today. sustainable than we are today. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's the best way of putting it. Yeah. So, so Ed, in terms of what we're doing and where we're going in terms of the, the plans for Delib, I at the time of recording know that we haven't got um, started on the building yet. 
So we're still in the stages of getting ourselves over there. We're running through it. We're racing through it 100 miles an hour to get ourselves there and to get ourselves open next year. Um, in terms of what we're doing, what just a handful of things, let's say three, for mm -hmm. argument's sake, three things that we that we that we're intending to do or that we're definitely doing and that you would like to do in terms of keeping this to be sustainable, the most sustainable museum in Scotland. So I think one of the one of the biggest things for me is to um make sure that the site is zero waste. Um so mm -hmm. that's looking at what we bring into the site, working with partners to encourage them to move to recycling um yep. or recyclable um packaging for example. Yeah. Um the second part of it is transport. So while we are in a beautiful place, uh, Lockte isn't the most accessible place by public transport. Nope. So how do we expand to local communities and further on encourage people to to yeah. use public transport? And what what's your thoughts on that? So I think so far, Not hold you to it, don't yeah, yeah. I think so. One of the one of the things is possibility of running a minibus um, or working with the local um, local community groups that have used so using their skills yeah. um, and learning from them. So you know the the abundance is always on the outside and finding out new ways of doing this yeah. um so yeah um we're also kind of linking that to active travel um so you know cycle routes um the final thing for me i think on a more personal note would be it would be nice to see the, the reuse so things that are not currently we wouldn't consider to use, but we find another use for them. We do it really well in, in, at the centre, that we, we reuse everything. So as we are going across there, we don't lose that, that we're using as much as we can. So the offcuts for when we're building you know, the Iron Age houses, they become stumperies or they become hugel beds that can then be used to grow food. Um, so yeah, they would, be, they would be my three. Um, and yeah, the work that we're doing at the minute, it's 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 pushing towards it again. It's it's understanding from the Iron Age that what we build will not last, and that sounds like a really um, quite alien concept to us nowadays. And it's because you know we live in a world where we spend so much money on a house or so much money on whatever it might be, then we don't want to think about it for the rest of our lives, and that's kind of our expectation. Whereas two and a half thousand years ago, you didn't build a house and then not worry it for the rest of your life. And what we have to do when we build the Lerb in terms of our Iron Age village, which is going to go alongside the Cranog, is that these buildings will deteriorate. Yep. And then as those buildings deteriorate, we can either, you know, fold them back into the ground. As you said, we can, we can use that because yep. it's all completely destructible material. So there'll be zero... zero Zero trace. <laughs> yep. I don't know if that's the right word to use. Um, but what that's also doing is by having a regular need to build these new buildings, we're not only creating buildings that are sustainable and don't sit there for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, leaving a mark on the landscape, your concrete, your whatever it might be. None of that's in place. But then... By repairing it every five years, every ten years. However, the less time that is, the better, because what that's doing is that's then bringing in the sustainability of the craft itself. Yeah. So green woodworking, thatching, stonewall building, 
turf building, all these skills are not used in modern day construction. And that means that there is a risk to the skills and that we lose them and we lose what we know about them. So actually by creating a space where we're saying it's okay to repair regularly, even with our structures, that that's actually sustainably keeping these crafts alive as well. So again, that's just a whole other element that, that you mentioned before, and it all just all just comes in. Yep. Um, we are running an event at the Cranog Centre on the 24th and 25th of September. It's our Rise and Shine Festival. Um, it's an event with hands-on activities and open-air performances um, hosted by the Scottish Cranog Centre with UNESCO Chair for the Refugee of Integration through Language and the Arts. Um, and the whole point is that craftspeople, artists, musicians from all across Scotland and internationally are going to come together to celebrate those crafts and the lifestyles of these different peoples. Uh, but in order to make a sustainable and resilient uh, kind of approach as to how we live today. So the festival itself is going to focus on climate justice. It's also going to focus on the refugee crisis. And it's also going to bring in sustainable tradi tr traditions, easy for me to say, uh, sustainable traditions and bringing people together in a way so again i think it's a whole event that just from what you've explained today ed it kind of fits with that mm -hmm. so we're going to be running tours from 10 till 4 uh, they'll be running every 45 minutes and we do allow and we welcome dogs and picnics as well um sustainable dogs that's the only type of dogs we want now yeah. so we've got all that running as well and just to carry on from this uh, myself and ian who was on a previous podcast, our coppice worker here at the Cranach Centre, in May, which was ooh, quite a while ago now, uh, we went on a week trip to Iceland to pick up one of these crafts, which maybe isn't as commonplace today, which was um, turf building. Uh, as part of our turf building um, work that we were doing, we had to record and uh, basically track down what we've learned and how we learned it. And uh, we were going to embed that into our podcast. And it'd be interesting uh, that we'll just put that on. And this will be a special double header of this podcast. Uh, but I can't can't say enough. Rise and shine on the 24th and 25th of September. It's well worth it. We're sat again with Ian. And we're doing a slightly different, slightly special episode as this is going to be focusing upon myself and Ian and our trip to Iceland for a week. Yeah, a week, seven, seven days. Yeah. Um, so as part of the uh, Erasmus Plus funded course that we did with through the Cranock Centre, uh, we have to produce a report at the end of it and because we're neither book, nor pen, nor computer people, mm -hmm. uh, we decided that probably the best way to do our report was just to actually have a conversation about what it was we were doing so we could get it out to as, as accessibly as possible to as many people. Um, so, Ian, very quickly, what did we do in Iceland? If you want to take people through, what was the plan? In Iceland, we were going to have a look at some heritage buildings. Uh, which are dotted across Iceland and then take part in some turf wall building, learning the techniques and the skills to build a turf house, really. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I think the reason we, we, we decided that we, as an organisation, had to send people on this one is that with the development going on at Delurb, what we're looking to do is to have 
turf uh, ingrained in the in the the structure and have that skill kind of built into what we're building at Delurbe. So our our roundhouse, uh, two of the shelters outside mm -hmm. the roundhouse, they will all be um, using turf as part of that structure. So this. It was an interesting thing to start with because it was our way of getting an idea of what is actually needed to use this craft and this skill. Um, you know, I think it's got a very clear visual. You say turf walls, and people think mudhuts, but actually, it's it's a, there's a, there's a, what this week I think game with us was was a was a clear appreciation for the skill that's involved. I think the skill and the techniques used. Uh, which are when people think about mud walls, you just think about built up mud walls, but actually, you're looking at something that was more like techniques relating to stone diking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, there was quite a little difference to what I thought it was going to be when, yeah. when we got there, uh, which was quite evident on the facades where you can see the different herringbone patterns yeah. that appear at the end of it. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean uh, the the first thing that we started with, which I think was was quite enlightening to me, was the the material itself. Um, so I think in terms of turf, I, I had assumed there was a a, a one size fits all, <laughs> but but what came abundantly clear, and I think it's something that that you don't appreciate the craft and and the. The understanding of the people in the past that would have used turf structures, how they would have been able to read their landscape and mm. know what's underneath the ground and what is available. Because obviously a piece of turf, I can take a stick a shovel in the ground, cut a clod of earth. Not that simple, is it? No, it's, it's <laughs> not. It's not gonna. It's not gonna help you build in your building. Um, what you need is really strong root structures that go deep. And and again, from um, Helgi there, to explaining that you know you need wetland sites and the wetter the better because mm -hmm. the roots grow deeper and then the wetter the better because it's easier to cut and then also the wetter the better if it's in a if it's in a really boggy area because you've not <coughs> had excuse me sorry mm -hmm. you've not had plowing going on either and that's mm -hmm. that was i thought i thought again i was thinking um with our construction at the lab we'd stick a nice herringbone pattern structure up mm -hmm. and i'd just go into the field next door and, and cut a load of big chunks but actually the fields that are plowed you're breaking up all that root structure and it mm -hmm. means that you can't it's not strong it's not usable turf mm -hmm. so for me i think that the material the understanding of the material was was quite incredible um and to, just to carry on from that as well the, the fact that even if the material is not perfect mm -hmm. it was the way that you made it work mm -hmm. which is i think it's, <coughs> it's a, there's a lot of learning there in terms of how you when we're building Vernacular buildings, which is a, it's a great buzzword at the minute. Vernacular buildings, it's all over the place. But also, when you're building any traditional, you know, techniques with 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 the raw materials like turf, you've got to, There's an element of make do. You're not going to get right angles. You're not going to get. Oh no. no! 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 Definitely not. And I think that was that was quite a, <coughs> quite a, a, a enlightening part of it was that you make it work and, and the finished products, you know. Was was a thing of beauty in the end. Mm. You know, it, it it didn't look shortcutted or anything like that. It was just everything was thought about, processed, and you know the first the first clumps that we were cutting out were mm -hmm. the wrong shape and they were the wrong size and yeah. they were a bit naff. 
Yeah. They still went in the building. Yeah. Because they could be used. Yes. You're not going to cut three times. <coughs> no. Um, thoughts on that, Ian? Any thoughts about the materials themselves? Uh, I think one of... One, from the material point of view, and they actually putting it all together, as you say, you, you use everything, but it was quite interesting having architects on the course as well, mm -hmm. uh, who, and quite rightly so, probably found it quite hard to get their head round what we were actually doing, yeah. and how it would actually work. Yeah. But when you're standing there, and obviously the visit involved a lot of visits to different uh, turf churches and houses, and we started the visit off with that by going to the, the museum mm -hmm. and looking at the different structures. Uh, it was great to see the eyes of the architects that were with us kind of looking and thinking, well, I would never build anything like that, but actually no. they've been here for hundreds of years. Yeah. <laughs> it works. It yeah. really works. No, definitely. Um, yeah, and I think uh, what from, from what we'll take away is that Iceland is a country that still has turf structures and it still has, you know, they've, they've kept that skill alive and they've kept, not on mass, and I think it would be fair to say that it's not as alive as the people involved would like it to be. They'd like more people to be, you know, looking after these turf buildings in the way that is traditional, but it's a country that suits turf. Yes, yeah. I find it quite interesting, uh, even at the first visit, where they were talking about the Icelandic people at the moment, and they're kind of split on whether they want to lean back to the past, or and a lot of people think, oh, we don't want anything to do with that, we're moving forward as a nation, but I think... The, the, You've seen examples of that before where people try to push forward as a nation but they always get to some stopping point and think, right, hold on, we don't want to lose these, even though we're not using them on a day-to-day -day basis, we yeah. don't want to lose these skills. Yeah. Uh, and because they're being kept alive, you can see where they're actually, I mean, it was beautiful to work on a farm that someone actually grew up on and had came back to that farm yeah. when they finished their career and we were renovating the buildings on that yeah. farm. Uh, and it was a good working relationship there as well, where they were heavily involved with that. Yeah, it was nice to know that what we were building was going to be used. Yeah, it wasn't going yeah. to be just just looked at. No, 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 at. no. It wasn't a museum piece. It was more for the actual building experience, and it was going to be used by the couple that lived there. Yeah, yeah. and I think that that idea of of and again, it's a term that's that's used, but maybe not appreciated for the way it's used. But heritage craft, that it's not always about. The, the the actual building or the item or whatever it might be being from the past but being able to look at a thing and know that the techniques are those of the past so there's nothing as, a, as an archaeologist something tangible that you say oh that's that's two and a half thousand years old or that's a thousand years old or that's from the, the settlement in Iceland when the Vikings first arrived mm -hmm. but the craft and the scale you can look at and appreciate where that's come from so it's I think that yeah, was an and a very, a very tried and tested method. But again, I mean, looking at that, I sometimes related to stone wall building again. You know where that craft is still alive, and and mm. I think that, that I wasn't really that aware of turf wall building at all before mm -hmm. we went. Before we spoke about the possibility of it at the Lerb, yeah. and it was fascinating to go and see that that skill is still there. Yeah. Also. I wasn't aware, but to come back and then find out that 
the technique had actually been used already in Scotland, but yeah. someone had been in the course prior, yeah. and they'd done some turf wall up in Glencoe yeah. at the Creel House, yeah. and that was amazing to go and see. Mm -hmm. They were very lucky. I don't know if you've seen that, yeah, yeah. where the turf actually came right from next. right next yeah. to them. I don't <laughs> think we've got that luxury, but that was beautiful to see that. But I think actually saying that, having that resource right next to you, that even if it, I mean, they had stuff that they could use in a turf wall that was right next to them. We'll see how long that lasts. It stands the test mm -hmm. of time. Time will tell. And I think it would, by the all intents and purposes, it was, it was good turf they had right next to them. But where you build your turf house is next to good turf. Mm -hmm. You can't, and again, I think that came from from the the site they were talking about in 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 Iceland, where they were saying, right, well, they were trying to look for where the turf came from to uh -huh. repair it, and they were like, well, we're going to use the turf that's in the field next to it because that's the turf that they would have used because yep. you're not going to travel huge distances to get mm -hmm. turf. Um, I think they 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 were they were lucky uh, to find it, but actually, that kind of it makes a lot of sense to me that even if it wasn't the perfect turf even if there was turf three miles away that was mm -hmm. better quality you'd probably use your stuff next to you anyway i think we also seen that there's a lot of there's a bit of repairing goes on with any any building like that uh, and that also makes sense when you're looking at the ongoing repairs and maintenance of the building uh each time you need to replace maybe a bit of a corner mm -hmm. you're not having to travel miles it's right beside you and if it's lower quality and you're having to replace it more, again, it's a lot easier when it's right next to you yeah. and you can do that. Yeah. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I think it was a good good learning as well, I thought, from the fact that the the buildings that in Iceland, that they, the older ones that they were maintaining that have been, they kind of... The, the thought was is that the maintenance was costing too much money because it was taking too much time to have to keep repairing and keep repairing and keep repairing. Mm -hmm. So, as is natural in the way that the world is set now, they decided to look at alternatives that <laughs> would, you know, try and help or shorten the amount of time they have to, you know, sorry, lengthen the amount of time between replacing uh, the turf in mm -hmm. it. And what what came from that was, you know, putting in plastic sheeting underneath. You know, it was it was a turf facade. And then, kind of a modern material underneath, which again gives the the aesthetic and lets people see it, and you can explain it. But what it actually did, which was really interesting, I think it was Helgi that put it, is it doesn't it doesn't solve the problem of having to repair it more regularly. All it does is it creates different problems. Yes, that was quite evident in some of the buildings where it was mm -hmm. creating more problems than it was yeah. actually solving. Yeah. yeah, and I think that that's something that that again when you put in. With the idea of heritage craft and what we're trying to do and this is what we want to embed into love and i think that's why actually going to, to iceland and getting this information it, it helped for me anyway it helped solidify our thinking and how we're approaching it um but that idea that we're going to do it not as an iron age facade but an iron age right the way through so makes an awful lot of sense joints yeah material all these things we're going to try and implement obviously we're, we're not we're not in the Iron Age, so there are modern constraints, and I say constraints, but there's, there's modern constraints. We've got health and safety. We've got, you know, we can't. We're not going to expect people to lift and do the physical labour because we're not in the Iron Age. But what we can do is we can keep that craft and that skill alive. Don't know if the Iron Age skills are alive anymore, but we can allude to them with what we're doing. 
I would have to disagree with you there because I think the Iron Age skills are alive. Uh, mm -hmm. Being a green woodworker and working with the hand tools uh, mm -hmm. for cleaving and splitting and hewing, I always reckoned that they obviously dated back a few hundred years, but to see the Iron Age tools, which mm -hmm. are very similar to the tools that are today, then those skills are alive, especially yeah. in the woodworking. It's the bit I know about and it's, it's so evident that that has came through time. You'll see it in a lot of, you know, bigger buildings down south where you'll see the axe marks, the same axe marks, marks that were getting made in the Iron Age. Yeah. So I, th I, th I think a lot of the skills, and even in coppicing, I mean, they yeah. were there's a lot of things that are still, uh, still there. But it's important that we do pull that together and make yeah. sure that they do survive. Yeah, and that's where the, the turf, because there is, there is archaeological sites so the reason we're trying to implement turf is there was an archaeological site over in Pitlockery and the roundhouse that we're going to be constructing it's um, a double stone wall but then between the two stone walls there was a, a deeper indent and in that deeper indent um, there was neolithic flints found on a late bronze age early iron age roundhouse so the question is how do you get neolithic flints on top of a bronze age iron age roundhouse and, mm -hmm. and thought process behind that is is that you've got not a load of stone in the two stone walls we've got the footings we don't think they were two meter high all made of stone dry stone walled walls but what we think they were doing is they were actually using dry stone basin mm -hmm. which is exactly what we saw in mm -hmm. iceland especially yeah. i think it was in the south you were saying before Yes, but also in the north, there was yep. still the dry stone at the bottom. Yeah, yep. and that, that inclusion of stone into the turf wall to give it more of a case of drying and more stability. But then above that stone would have been pure turf. So the idea is, is that by having the Neolithic flints on top, if you're going out cutting turf, you'd be potentially mm -hmm. taking those flints from the ground and not knowing and putting them into structure and then that's adding them on top of that mm -hmm. so we wanted to integrate turf into it and there is there is a turf um culture in in scotland um and it's really interesting again to think about the roots of where because iceland is a unique country mm -hmm. that it only starts with what they call the settlement which is I'm going to get this wrong 800. now. 800. 800 AD, something around then. It's basically yeah. the Viking settlement. Prior to that, there is no human occupation. I, I struggle as somebody that does prehistory to get my head around that. I just, I still... I, th I think the general chat is there was, just no one had settled. Because yeah. there's a lot of talk of the Scots and the Irish monks and being so, present there. Yeah, and this so, is where they were so saying... It's, it's more a kind of settlement. Yeah. That, it, and I think they were making that clear that they don't have a great deal of it, but they do have some evidence, but there was no settlement. No settlement. No real and, settlement. And the thought is, is that actually they did the genealogical study in Iceland and 70% and of the women that were in part of that mm -hmm. settlement had come from Scotland. Yeah. So there's this movement from Scotland to Iceland to inhabit it. The way of life, and they have turf buildings that go as far back as the settlement, mm -hmm. so that's got to come from somewhere. You don't just arrive in Iceland and go, right, well, here's some nice turf, let's build some turf yeah. houses. Yeah. The technique and the knowledge has got to come from somewhere. So actually, it seems odd for us to go to Iceland to build prehistoric turf houses, considering Iceland is only inhabited from a very historical period, but mm -hmm. the historical occupation has actually come from... 
before that in Scotland, which yeah. their techniques would have gone back to prehistory. So it's it's that's our thought process actually. We could have gone to a lot of different places and learnt a lot of different structures, but actually, Icelandic turf kind of has, if you follow its roots, all puns intended, follow its roots back. I think it, it's probably the most connected to Scottish prehistory as we could find. In terms I would of I would think really connected. Yeah, from what I've learned and what I've learned from the visit, uh, and obviously I've looked at a few things since then, uh, then obviously, yeah, I mean, they didn't just appear there in 800 and think, right, let's dig some turf and build a building. Mm -hmm. It was skills they already knew. Yeah. Uh, and they knew across the board. And as you say, I mean, looking at the genealogy, the Norse, the Scots, the Irish, they'd been mingling and mixing. Mm -hmm. In fact, they're still doing it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, all that knowledge would have been there, you know, mm. so it does make sense that that travels. But one of the things I had noticed, one of the things that we spoke about when we were there was the different climates even in Iceland, yeah. where depending on what material was available, they may have used a bit more stone in some places. I think where we were in the north building, uh, there was a dryness to it and a lot of wind, yeah. so that suited solid turf from the stone base, solid turf all the way, all the way over, but there was talk in the south due to the rainier climate, which is probably what we have here. Yeah. They would have incorporated a bit more stone further up as well, just for stability with the, yeah. with a lot of rain. Uh, so that was really interesting, and there was chats, that's the two that stick in my mind, but there was chats that further around Iceland it would just basically be de weather dependent, and what material they had as well, so yeah, yeah I think that leads us to maybe using a bit more stone yeah i think i think definitely from the rain we get <laughs> yeah it's, it's pretty wet um, and we're also i mean i think that's one of the things from our cranog is that we learned is that the the wind we've got a modern modern day architecture we're always worried about wind getting underneath things and taking it and ripping it away and mm -hmm. disappearing but actually wind is can be incredibly useful because what yeah. it's doing is it's keeping it's keeping your material, especially in a wet climate, it's drying it out as quick as it possibly can. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what we found with the crown roof, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, so we thatched that out of reed. And it was the same reed that they use over the hill in Lochte up into Fortingal. Mm -hmm. And the reed up in Fortingal, they're thatching that. It's an English thatched method much, much later. Uh -huh. um, they have to get an English stature up to maintain it. Um, mm -hmm. But they, they have a lot of tree cover and it, the buildings are sheltered and because of the tree cover and the sheltered buildings you think that would you know give it more protection but actually it wasn't getting the wind to it and when you get rain you're getting the rain hitting the roof but yeah. then you've got the trees over the top that are just constantly dripping yeah. and just gradually adding and keeping that wetness on it and the thatch over there it wasn't particularly lasting very well now we lost our granog last june so it was up for nearly 25 years not one bundle of reed had to get changed in 25 years <coughs> that's not the same to be said about the village across the thing so i think where we located mm -hmm. with the wind if we're clever <coughs> we kind of we don't want it to be exposed but actually to help our our turf stay dry yeah we want to try and get some wind to it and that that's going to be really tied into all the experimental process mm -hmm. with it is that you know Maybe one side the turf's going to stay better, maybe the other side the turf's going to disappear quicker. Mm -hmm. We don't know how turf is going to react in Lotte because nobody's built a turf house on the side of Lotte. Um, mm -hmm. So 
Yes. Again, looking at the turf on the Creel House and and up in Glencoe, uh, interesting to watch that. But again, it's that's in a completely different position. Mm. You know, I mean that is sitting at the sort of bottom of a glen where they're going to have a tremendous flow of wind coming yeah. down there. It's going to be completely different. You would think geographically that we're pretty similar, but actually it's a site that's completely different. Yeah. You know, we probably get the same kind of weather, but the site is different. We don't have the same. We do have the wind channeling up the loch, but there is tree coverage as well, so yeah. it will be completely different. It'll be interesting. Yeah. It'll be, well, it's part of the, part of the process of, of why we're doing it, is to see yeah. how these materials react. And then maintaining and repairing them. We're not mm -hmm. going to build it and then stick a bit of plastic on the inside. It's mm -hmm. going to be it's going to be Iron Age materials right the way through. Mm -hmm. um, so it helps us to learn more. I think that's one of the things with the Lurban. Taking what we've learned at Iceland in terms of understanding the material better, but then applying that into a Scottish climate, yeah. which yeah. is, I think, one of the biggest jumps that everybody's that seems mm -hmm. to have thought about this has said find you won't find the nice Icelandic turf in Scotland it just doesn't oh, no. exist but we're trying to apply those same techniques and that understanding to the Scottish turf that we managed to find and we will manage to find it um yes yeah, so kind of begs the question see if you go see if you went away back and you think about the, the tough wall building techniques and you yeah. think about the first settlers in Iceland yeah I wonder if they landed there and started digging the turf and thought, well, this is good. <laughs> yeah, this is. <laughs> oh, if we'd have had materials like this yeah. before, you yeah, know, yeah. there is a possibility that happened because <laughs> it is really good quality turf. <laughs> but like that, I'm sure there's similar stuff in different places, you know, around well, the I world. Think, I think the biggest thing with, with, with the Icelandic turf is that it wasn't, it wasn't ploughed. No. Because again, there's no occupation, there's no settlement, it's just, mm -hmm. and this is where my mind boggles, for, for well, thousands of years people have been living and farming and occupying this entire, it's not a small country, mm -hmm. this entire country is sat there just untouched for its, it's not maybe untouched for its raw materials, but mostly untouched for its probably materials. only tapped into, you know, yeah. we're passing ships looking for some timber repairs, yeah. you know, because they did have a lot of trees in, <laughs> uh, and I think that was sort of documented that Although we were talking about the settlements, there was obviously evidence that people had stopped off doing yeah. repairs or, you know, yeah. So it wouldn't have been totally untouched, no. but, but mostly. The, yeah, yeah, the geology is almost just lending itself. And it's the thing I'm, I've, I've been getting quite interested in is that what does, instead of looking at what, what the archaeology makes available for us to build and use in the area, back then they didn't think, what's the archaeology we can use? But actually, what dictates what you build and what dictates what you make is the geology. Yeah, it's what you've got available. Good. Yeah. Good clay means good pots. You know, mm -hmm. good turf means turf houses. Good stone mm -hmm. means stone houses. Your crannogs, good wood mm -hmm. means you're building crannogs out of it. So I think that's another thing that again you mentioned it down south. They built different what they built north, yeah. what they built west, yeah. and that's helped to us solidify. I think our our methodology that we're trying to apply to learn, but we're going to use what's available. Also, the way. It's obviously changed over the centuries as well, you know, because although first people landing in Iceland, people before that would have came across some lovely trees. Yeah. Uh, once they were all cleared, they've adapted that, you know, they're only yeah. using driftwood, but they're utilising what they have. Uh, there's no big hands in the air going, oh no, we've run out of trees. 
they use the driftwood yeah. and they're quite happy to do that and it's fantastic. It's been suits in the, the sea. Turf. Suits the turf. Been in the sea for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. One of the big things we were worried about is putting timber near turf mm -hmm. because you know why well, it's putting it like putting it in the ground, but actually their use of, of driftwood because it is mm -hmm. it's, it's salt treated basically, so it's incredibly rock resistant. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, it's just everything kind of pulls together, and mm -hmm. that's what we've got to try and do with the lerb is kind of pull the turf, the stone. And I mean, we won't know that until it all comes together, I think. Yeah. But it will, as it would have done two and a half thousand years ago, it will all come together. Oh yeah, it will come together. Uh, I think, uh, yeah. And even the changes that's went on there uh, just shows us that we're not looking for the perfect scenario. No. There is no perfect scenario. Because a lot of, as we go forward as well, it will be dictated by what is available in the yeah. area. Yeah. Now, even looking back at the... The thatching. I've done a bit of research into thatching at the moment and it's became apparent that the, the thatch we have in Loch Tay, which we've just invested in, uh, they're actually buying it down south. Yeah. They're, they're, they're shipping it down there because it's better, you know, yeah, yeah. it's better suited to the climate and it's lasting a lot longer. Yeah. Uh, so we're really lucky that we have that. We might not always have that and that might need to change in, at some point, who knows? But at the moment, we've got really good material for that, so that's what we'll use, and it's local. Yeah. It's as local as we can get with that Walking one. distance, walking distance is the point. Yeah. yeah. Right, well, thank you very much, Ian. I think that's, no, thank that's you. plenty to talk about. I have to say, we had a lovely week. We did have a lovely week, a lovely actually. Week. It was absolutely... Uh, I, I, I still haven't really got my head around exactly what that experience was. The people were so welcoming. Yeah. Uh, it was so friendly, yeah. and the, but but apart from the top, the, the cultural visits, the visit to the yeah. national park, yeah. which, okay, I'll say it. Sometimes you think, oh, that's just a wee jolly we're having. Yeah. It wasn't. It was really important, well, yeah. and it was brilliant to go and visit that yeah. site and the other sites yeah. and meeting the yeah. the bishop. Yes. And, yes. And and visiting the oldest. Church yeah, that was incredible. And some of the sites, I mean, that that was again, it's easy to go, oh, we're having some day trips out, yeah. but they were brilliant. They were that really, did and it, all, it all kind of fed in, as yeah, well, yeah, doing. yeah, it all um, fitted in. Sorry, it all really, really did. Yeah, really. Brilliant. Cheers, Ian. Thank okay, you very thank much. you.